Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are listening to Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. And uh, really excited today. Um, our guest is someone that I've interviewed a couple of times. Um, she is a prolific writer, uh, author, children's books, and um, books on spirituality and sexuality and how those commingle. Um, she is Suzanne DeWitt Hall. And I'm really excited to bring her on shortly. Um, she has a brand new book out called Sex with God. And, um, yeah, that is certainly intriguing. And it is, it is actually a wonderful book. Um, I've read it cover to cover. And, um, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it is a wonderful discussion starter. And so we are going to start that conversation on today's show, and you don't want to miss it. Um, before I bring Suzanne on, um, I do want to welcome to the show my illustrious co-host and journalist, Brody Levesque. Brody? Good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon, listeners. Good morning, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to the show and subscribing on your podcast. And before I talk about news, uh, the title of Susan's book has got to be the best title possible to get the folks down at the American Family Association and One Million Moms in Tupelo, Mississippi, clutching pearls right about now. I can only imagine, okay, the shrieks <laughs> in the echo chamber of the Christian right over that title. Um, so speaking of shrieking, uh, President Donald Trump is in Ohio today. Uh, which was an interesting trip. Uh, Ohio Governor uh, DeWine announced uh, to the press before Air Force One landed that he had tested positive for COVID-19 and he was immediately isolating himself. Trump was speaking to a group of factory workers uh, in Ohio uh, and announced that he was imposing uh, heavy tariffs against Canada uh, on aluminum uh, because the Canadians aren't helping us out any. And then he was talking about all these companies that have moved their operations into Southeast Asia. And he specifically singled out Vietnam and Thailand. Thailand. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. The President of the United States referred, okay, to the kingdom of Thailand as Thailand. Once again, you know, a Trumpism. Uh, in the news today, the Senate is oh, headed for Brody, before, Yeah. Before you move on to that, um, Trump had a um, horrific interview since last we spoke on the show uh, with Axios, um, which was an absolute disaster. I It, it boggles my mind that um, the Republican Party hasn't I, I don't even know what. I mean, it's like it has gotten to such an absurd level that he virtually can show being as inept as humanly possible um, 
and and it's it's crazy. I mean, it's it's insane. Um, in any other time, any other place, there would be a secondary candidate to challenge an incumbent like this. Uh, when Jimmy Carter was in office and he was having a struggle because of uh, gas shortages and everything else, Ted Kennedy um, actually started to challenge him and tried to challenge him for the nomination. Um, what is going on? Why, why has Trump got the stranglehold over that party? It's, it's twofold. Uh, it's fear factor to uh, the Republicans are in deep, deep, deep trouble. They know it. Um, they are seeing a turning of the American population on, you know, things that they hold dear. Uh, I think the other part of it is they have been in power for so long and they have felt virtually uh, bulletproof and bombproof uh, against the Democrats uh, that they'll retain power no matter what, and not just at a federal level, but at a state level as well. And I think they've misjudged uh, American voters. We've been looking at the polling numbers. Um, I got polling numbers today on a number of important senatorial races. Uh, Lindsey Graham, for example, is tied with his Democratic challenger. Uh, Susan Collins in Maine uh, is actually trailing her challenger. Mitch McConnell's seat is not that safe. Uh, The Republican fire pilot lady uh, in Arizona is being given a serious run for her money uh, by Captain Mark Kelly. So what we're seeing is that they've been propping up Trump. uh, Trump. Well, that's about right. They've been propping up Trump, and that's been their whole focus has been maintaining their power hold. If you look at the Republican Party, it is actually – in disarray. Trumpism, which is what we're calling it, has eaten away like a cancer at the body politic of the Republican Party. And it's just, you know, it's not a survivable moment for them. And they're desperate to cling to power. They're betting that the way to do it is through Trump's base. And while Trump's base actually hasn't shrunk at all over the last four year period of time, it also hasn't increased at all. But the problem is it's powerful enough that it's cowed the rest of the Republican Party and beaten, brow, basically browbeaten them into submission. And, of course, the other thing for you know, higher-ups in the party like Mitch McConnell and, and some of the people that actually have the political power within the party, they love Trump because they've been able to appoint judges and they've been able to shift the entire judicial to the right, which is going to cause and create havoc probably for a good number of years, long after Trump is gone. Um, You know, we've been looking at the numbers going into this election. It's highly unlikely at this point that Trump will be reelected. It's also very highly likely that the Senate may not flip, but it'll be so close in margin that McConnell will not be able to ride the agenda anymore, especially not with a Democratic administration. I'm not saying that Trump couldn't pull it out at the last minute, it just it isn't looking that way. There is a certain right. amount of fatigue factor with this administration, and I think at the other the other end of it, his complete and total inept handling of the COVID crisis, uh, the blatant racism, uh, the the ignorance, which has been showcased numerous times, but really got showcased in that active interview this last 
weekend on HBO. I, I think that we're starting to see people really understanding, you know, that at the end of it, okay, the Republican Party is is dead, and it's going something else will have to rise out of the ashes of it. I don't think anybody truly needs what it is, but the Republican Party since the Reagan era has been the party of white elite uh, males, mainly, and uh, syncopant uh, female politicians. And it's just gotten to the point where, you know, America itself has changed radically. And the blatant discriminatory practices, racism, and quite frankly, openly naked bigotry and hatred coming not only just from the White House, but from Capitol Hill, I think has finally got enough people out in you know, what I call mom, pop, apple pie, Chevrolet and Walmart land uh, to, to take a, a hard look. Hey, you're, you're always going to get the zealots and you're, you're always going to get the idiots. I mean, I, I, I had an editorial session this week with my colleagues. Uh, we were commenting on the plethora of the Karen and Kevin videos that have appeared on the Internet and through social media. And it, it paints a really ugly picture of the United States, but what it does more than anything else is it puts in very sharp release, a relief rather, that is really truly America. You, you, you can't get around that one. It's there. And Trump has brought all of that bubbling to the surface, and now it's just going to be a matter of, quite frankly, you know, <laughs> repair, 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 and right. hopefully, you know, turn things around. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. And you had, did you have other stories that you wanted to share with us today? Well, I think some of the other things that, you know, people need to be paying attention to, uh, the Senate and uh, leadership and the House leadership are still fighting uh, over the next stimulus package. They're not moving anywhere close to it. Uh, we could be looking at next week, although, interestingly enough, the president has expressed his displeasure with that, and he's threatening executive orders although we're not exactly sure what he's capable of doing since the purse strings are obviously controlled by Capitol Hill and Congress. Um, most of the fighting is on, uh, you know, direct relief money to the American people. Um, the Republicans want to lower the amount. The Democrats want to keep it the same. Uh, the Democrats don't want to put through any pork barrel projects. The Republicans, on the other hand, have got a couple of special interest things they Want done so it's kind of a seesaw back and forth. Uh, Speaker Pelosi and uh, her delegation met with Secretary Menchkin and the Republican leadership, including the White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, again today uh, in Washington. We've gotten really nowhere closer to resolution, uh, and of course the Senate is going out uh, for this weekend uh, into a recess period. Uh, so there's a lot of frustration in Washington right now. And, of course, then there's the COVID crisis. Um, the numbers across the United States are pretty sketchy at best. Uh, the argument over schools is starting to become finely tuned. There was a school that reopened uh, in Mississippi, and then they had to shut it down, like, not even after a day because they suddenly had a rash of infections. Um, I've had conversations with the Centers for Disease Control and with the National Institutes of Health, I've spoken with Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci has said repeatedly that it's it's masks, it's the social distancing, um, and it's the crowds. And, and the whole thing with the schools is going to be greatly dependent, you know, on testing and on the safety factor. And, you know, at this point, 
uh, only the American Northeast has really whipped the problem. And ironically, at one point, New York State in particular was the epicenter for it. Um, right now, going into the fall, it doesn't look as though uh, the Americans have a really good you know, grip on this. In California, uh, the Los Angeles uh, Public Health Department reported to us in the press yesterday that 60% of the people infected were 18 to 39 60%. So there you go. So school openings are a hot topic issue. Um, then, of course, to go along with the COVID crisis, uh, you have the Trump White House uh, fighting against mail-in ballots. So that will be another controversial you know, play for the White House as we move into the election season. And this virus isn't going away. Um, the United States has not controlled it. The United States needs to control it. Uh, but the real problem is, is that you've got a lot of people uh, that don't seem to get that. Right. Yeah. No, the school closure thing baffles me just because so many of the arguments are whether or not kids can't, you know, get seriously ill from it. They carry it and they'll take it home. And it's just, it, it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. <clears throat> well, thank you, Brody, for, for uh, bringing us up to date on all that. So I want to shift gears um, to uh, our guest and her latest work, which is Sex with God. And uh, with that, I want to welcome to the show uh, Suzanne DeWitt Hall. Suzanne, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be talking to you again. Yeah, it, we, this is very different than the last thing we talked about. I think the last thing uh, I had you on the show for was your um, children's books. Well, then it's certainly been a while because it was probably the first <laughs> Rumble Pimple book. And that's been, we were trying to figure out how long it's been. It's been at least five years, I think, since that launched. So I guess it's been a well, while. It, well, I think we must have had, there's another show in between there then. So I, oh, okay. Uh, the children. <laughs> because I'm sure it hasn't been that long, but it, anyway. it doesn't seem like it. <laughs> yeah, we we digress. Um, so uh, let's go right to the, the case at hand. How much black have you received from publishing a book called Sex with God? Um, certainly, to Brody's point before, you must be raising rack, or hackles in quite a few quarters just by the title alone. Well, the book is fresh out. We just launched on uh, Friday. So we're only beginning to hear, you know, feedback. But in the first, you know, 24 hours or so, it was called demonic. It was called um, sick uh, and a few a few other terms. People, I presumably, they're the, you know, the far-right Christians that Brody mentioned, um, although they didn't specifically say so. It was in interest from interesting quarters. It wasn't from, you know, sort of traditional Christian uh, communication channels. It was kind of out in, uh, in other places on the web. Um, so, yeah, people are finding it quite distressing, and I think that it's, it's an interesting tell um, and kind of proves the need for having written the book, that that would be the reaction. <laughs> right, right. Now, your last book um, was called uh, Theology of Desire. Um, I'm assuming that that is sort of along the same lines, but maybe not quite as 
um, out there as, quote, unquote, sex with God. So Theology of Desire, they're, they're companion books, really. And I debated about whether to create a single book or break them into, into two um, because the a Theology of Desire deals with the hunger that God has for us and the re, um, resulting hunger that we have for God and for each other. Um, so it has a lot to do with sort of the longings of the heart and the, the hungers of the spirit and the soul for union. Um, and then sex with God deals with the actual physical aspects of, of that hunger, of those hungers, um, mutual hungers for each other and for God and God's hunger for us. So, um, but it deals with the physical. So what, what was your inspiration, um, especially for, which I, because I think it's brilliant. Um, and the part of the reason I think it's brilliant is that I think the most intimate secret parts of each of us um, are kind of twofold. One is our specific sexual desires, and I'm not just talking about um, sexual orientation as to who we're attracted to, but the exact ways that we like to express ourselves sexually, what our um, excitement levels are over different stimulus, um, you know, and, you know, what, what specific sexual acts are specific to us as individuals. It's sort of a deeply private part that don't even share with anybody, but the people that we're actually engaging in that, that, that process with. And then the other part that seems incredibly personal and intimate and secretive within ourselves is our exact spiritual connection, belief system, um, you know, and true, um, you know, spiritual outlook. Even even if we go to a church, even if we identify as one label or another, oftentimes we have our own kind of secret inner beliefs and understandings and instincts about those. And it seems to me you have now molded both of those things into one. Um, and I, I just want to leave, open up to you. What, what was your impetus for doing that? Yes. Yeah, so first I want to respond to something specific that you said about, um, you know, these, all those intricacies of our personal preferences and the things we like and don't like. And you said that we don't share them with the world um, except maybe with our partner. And I think the reality is a lot of times we don't even share it with our partner, right? I mean, it's, it's, right. it's often rare that you have the level of intimacy where you can be truly open and express those things because we have so many fears and we feel so vulnerable. So, um, you know, I just wanted to touch on that is that optimally, you know, my goal, part of my goal in this book is to urge people to seek that level of intimacy and that our physical intimacy shouldn't be disconnected from that deeper level of intimacy and trust. Um, and that the sex is going to be so much better when beyond that um, skin level and the physical pleasure level. So that's, uh, you know, I wanted to address that specifically, but um, to your larger point of, you know, what was the prompting of writing this book? I've been contemplating the intersection of faith and sexuality for 
um, a couple of decades, I think. I um, was in a really unhappy marriage and, you know, felt this hole in my center that was in part because I didn't know who I was as a, as a person, who I was um, in, as a carrier of, of the divine and, and as a beloved of the divine, and in part because I was a really bad match for my husband. Um, and so I, I started thinking about what does this mean and how does it reflect, how does, you know, what does this hunger and this pain, um, how does it reflect um, th- that, that aspect of sex, sexual desire, which is of the heart, not just of the body? Um, how does that reflect our hunger for God? So, you know, I've been kind of marinating um, in this subject matter for a long time. And then... Um, I'm I'm now married to the love of my life and intensely happy and uh, desiring wholeness for more people. And part of that is sexual wholeness and and seeing the wonderful, healthy um, fullness that can come out of that kind of true intimacy that I was talking about. Um, it just seems like it needs to be shared and it seems to be that we shouldn't, we, you know, a couple of, uh, maybe like 12 years ago, I was in a socially conservative church. And even back then I was saying, we need to be talking about sex because sex is something that is so important to human, human lives and human minds. Um, we're kind of obsessed with it. And we can't separate. It shouldn't be separated from from faith. It needs to be embraced, discussed, understood, explored, um, and and tried to align in some way um, that that you know results in in good. So anyway, I just blathered on for a long time, but that's kind of oh, the no, reasoning behind the book. <laughs> uh, you're you're totally allowed. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. The. I mean, psychologists have shown that intimacy um, is a nurturing um, life necessity, and, and this is redundant, need that people have that gets ignored where, I mean, we know people need food. We know they need water. We know they need these things because the, the you know, it's sort of like biologically sensible. But they've also studied that need for touch and intimacy and closeness and everything else uh, as being uh, almost as important, if not more important um, to the human psyche and human well-being. And now, especially since uh, mental health is getting much more awareness as a viable um, requirement um, for human beings, uh, you know, that, that is probably, that awareness is, is escalated. Take us over to the spiritual side and God, and what is your view on God's um, part of that, and part of that as us as God's children and, and that relationship? I see uh, one of the reasons that I loved the title and my spouse, um, my Dolce, it, it kind of came to them fully formed. And, and when I was, you know, working on the book and they said, here, how about this for the title? I was like, oh, my gosh, it's perfect. Because I, I explore in this book kind of two sides of things. One is 
the divine that is within each of us made in the image and likeness of God and carriers of the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, you hear the, uh, the phrase namaste when people greet each other and they sort of bow, they put their hands together and bow. And that is an acknowledgement. It's basically saying the divine in me meets the divine in you or greets. There's a few different variations on the phrase, but that's essentially the, the message. It's a, it's a theme that kind of crosses um, faith traditions. So one big theme in this book is that in, in, um, in trying to kind of create a, a sexual ethic and uh, uh, reestablishing the sacred aspect of sexuality is in acknowledging that the person that you are with is a carrier of this holy thing. They're a holy being and that they should be um, worthy of, re- of respect fully in, in your sexual relationships. So that's like that one half of it is that, you know, that, that you have respect for yourself and that you have this deep respect and honoring and love of your beloved. And that then also God is there. God is, is with us wherever we are, whether we're in the bathroom, whether we're cooking, whether we're working, whether in bed with, with our beloved. So, you know, to, to, mention, you know, that you're having sex with, with God is, is just basically a truism. If you're having sex and, and God is there, then, you know, God is, God is there. And you can invite that sort of divine participation and say, you know, come Holy Spirit, enter into this act, enter into um, between us and, and draw us into this court of three through our physical union. Um, so that's that's kind of the you know the the while I do in the book explore a number of of physical issues that's the the central premise that gets um, uncovered through the through the daily meditations about the the divine. Not not to um, and and certainly I've seen um, in different sex scenes and different things where people are shouting out, Oh God, Oh God, Oh God. A lot. <laughs> right. So, um, so you might think that they're already taking your advice, but um, in, there's in, plenty of room for jokes in, in there. Believe me. I know. Oh, totally. totally. Um, but for a lot of people, um, and I think this is part of the need for your book in, in a big way is as soon as you start mentioning God, um, that takes the thrill out of everything. Uh, mm. Um, how, oh, that's how, interesting. How, I hadn't even thought about that, but people, I'm, I'm sure you're right. Because, I mean, it, was, it leads me to a bigger question. You, um, um, throughout the book, you know, you reference the Bible quite a lot, you know, and you, you pull up a lot of principles that are in the Bible um, that support um, a lot of the points that you're making throughout the book. However, if you, you can easily go back to the Bible as a completely sexually repressive um, piece of work. I mean, it, especially for women. Um, and, you know, obviously this is one of the, the paradoxes of the Bible itself. It's very easy for two people who see things completely from the opposite direction to prove their, both their points trying to use the Bible as their, is your viewpoint on the Bible itself as an authoritative piece of work. Well, I 
am evolving in my view. You know, I wrote Where to Love is my first devotional when, 2017 maybe? Um, and that had also been in formation for a number of years. And in that one, it was uh, highly scriptural based. This one is the least. And my, my previous devotionals all started with a scripture. This one is the first one which does not. I've been deconstructing my faith now for um, a long time. And, and uh, you know, something new and larger and more beautiful is, is resulting because of it. Um, my view of the scriptures, well, I think that it reflects humanity's search for God more than it reflects God's um, embracing welcome of us. You know, I think that it, when it comes to, you know, a lot of people talk about the, that the scriptures are inspired and error free and all those sort of things. And I, and, and one thing that, you know, I've been saying to people from that perspective is, okay, so perhaps God inspired people to write down these stories of things that happened and captured them so that later readers could say, my gosh, look how screwed up we were in our understanding of who God is, <laughs> you know, sort of like teaching by negative example. It's like, this is not, you know, right. if, if this, so if you're a Christian, you've got Jesus here who was said a lot of things in distinct contradiction to what the old Testament God had said and instructed and did. Jesus broke law repeatedly. Um, Jesus said, you know, you've heard the scriptures say X, Y, Z. I tell you, you know, uh, RST. Um, right. And so I think generation after generation, we're given the opportunity to look at this person of Jesus who is trying to say God is love. And we're given the chance to um, to try to take hold of that reality. And we fail miserably because we're humans. And humans are vengeful and humans are judgy and humans like rules and, you know, all these things that are reflected in the scriptures. Um, so I think that they're, they're instructive. Um, and, you know, when you take a story, like the stories from Genesis. Now Genesis starts out as a series of creation myths and it almost acts, I read it now like this catechism of which is a question and answer format, right? A catechism is usually a, a list of questions and then an answer, which explains things from a, a theological or a, a, a God perspective. And so I read those Genesis creation stories now as answering questions that humans were having, like, why are there males and females? How did the animals, why are there stars in the sky, right? You know, and we right. had to come up with answers to this. And, and you know, through all uh, peoples, they have creation myths. And these are our versions of, of those creation stories for how things came into being and, and how trouble, how much trouble we all are and how often we do things that are wrong, right? It's like, why do people do things wrong? Well, there was this garden. <laughs> and there was a serpent. Um, yeah, so, you know, my view of the scriptures is constantly evolving, and um, I think that we have a God who is, you know, an intellect and a creative force and a power of love um, that, and if we are reflections of that, then how good could God ever be upset about us exploring uh, 
truth. It's searching for truth more deeply, even if that means turning away from a particular book that tries to explain God. I mean, you can't put, if, if there is a God, you certainly can't fit them into a book. Um, and right. so why right. would they possibly have that for, for looking and seeking? Yeah, no, I love your uh, analysis of, of what the Bible is, you know, because I see it very similarly to where you've come to is, is a, an involvement in a chronological accounting of, of the path. And I love, you know, what you were saying about it's the, the, you know, mankind seeking to find God counting of that process. And to me, it, it, it evolves um, because it's, it's even if I look at the things like where in the new Testament, Jesus says, um, you know, here he gives two commandments that he says are the principles behind all the other commandments. And that's, you know, to love God above all else and to love your neighbor as yourself, which are kind of two overriding spiritual principles that are powerful today. I mean, if you lived up to those, those two principles, and they're, the second one is, is kind of subtly the basis of the whole equality movement itself um, in many ways. But when I look back at the, rules that Jesus said those replaced, some of them, it's hard to figure out how they fit under those two. I mean, it's, it's, he really, really um, blew up a lot of the archaic thinking and the things that were there. Um, and to your point about the mythologies of the, the creation stories, it's, a lot of people don't realize that they're actually two in the very beginning because the first chapter of Genesis goes through a creation itself. It ends. And then the next chapter is Adam and Eve, which is a whole other document that got tagged on there. They aren't like a continuation of part one and part two. It's like he did it once and then God under a different name did it again. And it, it becomes the Adam and Eve story. But tying back into your book, um, what, and I don't think you ever addressed this in the book or made reference to this, but even the, the garden story kind of is a statement on sensuality and shame where Adam and Eve are naked and, you know, free in the garden. They take part in this tree of knowledge and all of a sudden that's sort of where, the concept of dirty sex comes in They're They have to wear clothes because they have to be modest. And, you know, um, all of a sudden they're having sex and Eve is punished because, um, um, uh, you know, she was the one that, that took the apple down first and um, therefore she gets pregnant and um, that's her ramifications and all of that. Um, where, where do you make the bridge between that and sex with God? Well, first, I'm going to jump back to something you said about the two greatest commandments, um, because my Dolce often likes to say this is actually three, because it says love, you know, God with your whole um, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So that kind of connects with the mental health um, awareness that you're raising. Is that we have to love ourselves too? That's that's right. important. It's it's not a throwaway line in there, and we often do throw it away. Um, 
so as far as, you know, I haven't, oh, the Adam and Eve story is so uh, distressing on <laughs> so many levels. I mean, you start right off with um, the, that, you know, made in God's image, male and female. It doesn't say male or female. So right off the bat, we've got text. If you're going to be a biblical literalist, you've got text that says, one, God is male and female, not male. And two, that humans are male and female. Um, so, you know, gender identity, we, we really don't need to be so uptight about um, binaries. Um, and then, you know, there's the, the point that you raise about these two different stories. And, and it's not just that there's two, they're also contradictory. They say different things happen on different days. So when you're studying what scripture is and, and you're talking to people who are literalists, literalists and inerrancy um, folks and things like that, you know, pointing out the fact that these right from the very first book, the the creation itself um, is not consistent. So how can how can people say that the Bible is this thing where every single line needs to be taken as um, some sort of a, a rule and a, you know a, a truth fallen from directly from heaven and an instruction um, when it, there's disagreement right from the beginning. So as far as, you know, I don't know what has happened with with sexuality when it started being viewed as something kind of dirty. I know that um, in Calvin's day, it seemed to have taken a turn. I think in, in, in and out of the centuries, there's been a lot of Christian mystics who describe experiences of, of encounters with God in sexual terminology. It's often um, sounds like, you know, sort of a phallic penetration, a, a burning sword or a spear thrust into their centers and things like that. Um, and there's so much marital uh, comparisons. There's, you know, the Song of Songs is this steamy, erotic uh, love poetry. And, um, you know, over and over the stories of the Hebrew people falling, turning away from God are, is described as marital infidelity and, you know, that they're described as whores and the the book of revelation is this wedding feast so you know there's all this sort of sexual there's a lot of sexual stuff in the bible um but as you said there's also a ton of repressive abusive stuff um so it's i don't know maybe it's just a reflection of how messy we are in relation to our sexuality because we're yeah. we're pretty pretty messy <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So I want to I want to switch over to the book itself, and you cover quite a few topics from orgasm to consent to um, even BDSM. Um, what what uh, what uh, led you to those particular um, topics subjects within the book? It seems like within the Christian community, there is a hunger for a new sexual ethic, right? We have the purity culture, which is all kinds of problematic. I mean, that's, that's if people aren't familiar with the term, it's, there were these um, promise rings where people were pledging their virginity. Um, there would be modesty fashion shows so girls could be taught how to dress without um, tempting men into sin. Um, it put a lot of, most of the, of the, most of the responsibility um, in the purity culture teachings fell on the girls because, you know, we're, we're the occasion of the, um, of male sin. And, and so people, women feel like if they've been 
sexually assaulted, that it's our fault, that um, if we have sex before marriage, we're ruined, and that virginity is like some kind of a prize, and if you don't go into your marriage with it, then your marriage is doomed to fail, and, and we internalize all these messages. Um, so here we are, post-purity culture, and with increasing levels of LGBTQI plus inclusion in uh, Christian denominations and churches. And so there's a number of books um, out about sexuality from from this in this new era. This uh, you know, forget purity culture. Um, you know that that was all wrong, and a lot of them are kind of leaning toward an anything goes kind of a stance. And for me, you know, a lot of my, I've got several, I've got a couple books now that are kind of probing the in-between places that it's not, you know, purity culture is not the answer. Anything goes is not the answer in, in my view, but that we need a new sexual ethic, which does focus on this honoring the divine, honoring, um, honoring the holiness of each other. And so, in some of these, you know, new Christian books, which are rejecting shame and doing all this really good work, some of them are like, yeah, sex work, it's great. It's, you know, it's fine. Um, bondage and discipline and, and sadomasochism, they're wonderful. It's, you know, it's great. Whatever, whatever makes you, whatever titillates you is good. And I wanted to push back and explore that a little. And I had to, in writing it, one of the things, I don't know um, if you've experienced this in your own writing is sometimes the process of writing helps you figure out what you think about something. Oh, sure, <laughs> you might not sure, know. You start, you start writing about it yeah. and you have to kind of figure it out. And for some of these topics, I had to say, well, how do, what do I think about this? And, and as I wrote them, it helped distill that. Um, so for like BDSM, for example, I had a hard time, uh, find in, in in the way that I understood some of the practices to be, and I was talking to a um, a, dominate, a dominatrix who was trying to explain to me, um, you know, kind of kind of what can happen in some sessions. Um, it, you know, it's I think that if you're, I think that seeking to be, um, what's the word? Not diminished. To be, um, oh gosh. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the word. But in seeking to be made gross, to be made... Um, be oh humiliated. God, just, or, yeah. To be humiliated, yes, thank you. Yeah. There is something in you that is, that, that, that is not a good thing. I mean, it's, it's not a healthy... There's, that's a sign of something, I, I believe. You know, everyone's not going to agree with me on, on everything in this book by a long shot. But anyway... So in seeking that holiness, in the search for holiness, um, you know, how does that how does that fit into something like bondage and discipline? Um, because there is that aspect. There's often that aspect of hum- humiliation in it and um, degradation. Uh, so yeah, so a lot of these topics, I I was trying to kind of explore some of those things and figure out where where I believe the line is. And the point is that we should all be developing kind of our own sexual ethic. And I think that you started out our conversation was with saying that the book offers lots to talk about. (laughs) And, you know, that would be my goal is that people can read it and then develop their own um, model for what they believe is, you know, is right. To your, your point though, on, on uh, with, with the, humiliation, degradation, um, for a lot of people, 
their sexual turn-ons um, oftentimes are fantasy versions of things that are, for lack of a better term, bad. Like, you know, they're bound up, they're raped, they're taken advantage of, they're, you know, or they're, or the, the other way, they're, they're abusing somebody or, um, you know, um, you know, being hedonistic and everything else. And it's, and, and I'm talking about times when this is all done with consent that everybody's sort of playing a role and enjoying the freedom of being in a role and, and in this, this play um, that if it occurred without consent or against somebody's will, it would be actually the opposite. It would be horrific. I'm going to compare it almost like going to a horror movie where you're actually getting pleasure and enjoyment out of a horrible situation because you know it's not real um, and you're safe, even though you're letting yourself experience something that's very unsafe. How does that concept play into the sex with God spirituality? Hmm. I would have to give it, I would have to give it more thought um, to kind of, uh, you know, play with what you're saying. Um, I think that everything that I explored centers around that, those key things of honoring the intense beauty and dignity and worth and value of each person. Um, so yourself and the other person. Um, and, so my answer would have to come from that. And I think I would still be a little concerned, but, you know, again, this is, you know, one, one day out of, out of the whole 50 for the books. And I don't want to be um, dictatorial. You know what I mean? This is not for me to, this is, I know what I, I want and I speak um, and so I don't want to be, you know, telling other people what they should or shouldn't be doing. And that's, you know, that's not the intent of the book. Right, right, of course. Yeah. Um, what, what do you, where, what do you want the effect of the book to be? Well, I would hope that, um, as I was saying, that that people do use these meditations as jumping off points to kind of probe their own thinking and to kind of challenge their own thinking and to come to a lot more acceptance of themselves and what makes them tick and um, looking at evaluating, like even if they're into BDSM, for example, just thinking, thinking about um, what, what it is that they're doing and why they're engaging in it. And, you know, what is it, what is it um, speaking to? What is it, what parts of them are responding to it and being a little bit more um, in internal interior um, and more conscious. I think we don't think a lot. We, we think endlessly about sex without really thinking about sex. <laughs> we can't not think about it, and yet I don't know how, how deeply we think about it. Um, so I, I think my hope would be that people can uh, use the book to transform their views um, and to heighten their experience and to deepen their intimacy with their beloved or even with themselves if they don't have a beloved um, and, and that, that they don't have to be afraid 
that all of this, these aspects of themselves, which are so profoundly important, um, that they have to be separate from our understanding of God and understanding of faith and understanding of our loveliness to God, that we have these, all these urges, all these ranging urges. And, um, and I would hope it would help get rid of shame, you know, uh, that we can reject it and we can be much more accepting of ourselves um, and the ways that we tick. So those are, those are my well, hopes. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Um, one of the things that has come up, especially being um, part of the LGBT com- community, and I actually did a video of this around about my sons, um, was that a lot of sex, especially sex discussion, um, has to do with the procreative aspect of heterosexuality. And the Bible oftentimes is, is a blueprint for that, you know, in a very stringent way. I mean, there, there are places in the Bible where you can read that directly where it is that and only that end of story um, kind of, of thinking um, and one of the things that I found when I was what was about to talk to my sons about sex was I didn't want to present sex, not just selfishly as something that had nothing to do with me as their gay dad, uh, because that's what I've seen videos of. I saw a lesbian couple explaining sex to their son, and they were talking about how babies were made. And I was sitting there kind of going, well, you've kind of just described something that he's going to look at his parents and go, so this is something you guys don't do. You know, you know what I mean? It's like it, yeah. it, it, it took it out of, of, of that whole interrelationship thing. Your book has really nothing about that. I mean, yours is the other way where it's all about the connection, spiritually, physically, everything. Um, what would you say to people who are looking for sex as a procreative process? Well, I think that when we look at the Bible, uh, as you had said earlier about, um, you know, how it, it's 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 kind of bad when it comes to sex, especially for women, it's a product of times and social um, culture cultures where you know women's sex well women weren't terribly important, um, and and certainly their sexuality um, had nothing to do with anything other than procreation. They were there to, to make children and carry on the name and, um, and ensure their own uh, form of, um, you know, living on into the future. Um, so it's, it's not surprising that we, we, you know, at least in the Christian community is that there is that focus on procreation. There's the, the demand to, you know, fill the, fill the earth and, um, all of those things, but um, there's also I, it's a, a friend on Twitter is also similarly fascinated with with the sort of sexuality and Christianity, and she was asking if any of the passages in the Song of Songs are penetrative sex, because a lot of it feels very oral or um, maybe you know digital stimulation. There's there's that that right poem is so so darn sexy but it's very oral there's all these you know references to to tastes and flavors and fruit and you know all these things and there seems to be like virtually no um allusions to 
you know, the kind of sex that would result in having a baby. So it's interesting that there is, there's that, there's that much of the focus. Um, and yet in this book, in this, in this poem that's supposed to be describing God's relationship with us as with humans is in this intensely erotic poetry doesn't seem to have any um, baby baby making in it whatsoever. It's all just about pleasure. Um, yeah. So, you know, and it's silly. I mean, it, it, it's, it's ridiculous for, there's a lot of, you know, Christian um, people who, who, who do claim that stance in, in relation in particular to um gay folks, you know, they're like, well, you can't be, sex is supposed to be for this. So, you know, right, clearly right. says so in the Bible. Um, but meanwhile, they're having sex all over the place, not, not to be creating babies. They're, you know, using birth control or, you know, they're just doing all sorts of things that don't result in children and, and enjoying it a lot. Um, and would be deeply troubled if you tried to take away, that, take that away from them. Right. Exactly. No, <laughs> you know, I think it's I've a made that point silly many argument. Times. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure. It's like I've said, okay. Okay, the, the the heterosexual couples I know have two kids. So are you trying to tell me that you think they should only have had sex twice? Right. And that's it. <laughs> you know, job done. You know, and obviously the answer is no. Um, then also, uh, the one one potential audience for your book, um, and, and I guess my question is, how would you address these people? Is people who are agnostic to atheists that are not Bible centered or, or take their inspiration specifically from Christianity. Um, what, how was, how is, how does your book speak to them? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I'm increasingly moving away from um, a Christian focused spirituality and into a larger um understanding of the divine and and the universal universal oneness of all things really all people and all all of creation and um so that kind of thinking is saturated in the book although i do have i do refer to scripture in in some of the entries the concept is is only partially sort of christocentric i would call it I think for atheists, they might not find, um, they certainly wouldn't find as much resonance, although they might respond to just this idea of the respect of the others, even if they don't, you know, view humans as a carrier of that sort of divine spark, they might still, you know, understand that people should be given respect and valued, um, so, you know, I think atheists could respond to that aspect of it. I think that agnostics, if they do feel like there is something and, and we just don't know what it is and, you know, don't know how to express it or, or reach it, I think that it could speak to them pretty clearly. And um, Christians, uh, as long as they're not active evangelicals or super fundamentalist leaning, I think that, you know, it, it can speak very clearly to them. So that's right. my guess. Right. Well, perfect. It, it is it is a really inspiring uh, piece of work and obviously uh, an incredible conversation starter. I've loved the conversation we've had today on it. Um, how do people get both this book and your other books? The easiest way is to go to that monster. We, we love to hate Amazon. Um, you can also <laughs> find – you can 
check on uh, all your independent bookstores will have will be able to order it for you if they don't have it and you can go to the where true love is website to learn a little bit more and to order it direct if you want um an uh signed copies or if you'd like a copy sent anonymously to anyone that's something we also do especially with my lgbtqi devotionals um you know people sometimes send them to their families like i write a little letter to family members um but they, it's sent anonymously um yeah so also there's a the where to love is page on facebook is very active um dolce is constantly posting wonderful content on there kind of uplift your day and i think that those are the major places. Excellent. Um, Brody, did you have any quick question before we go? No, I think I'm pretty good. I've been just sitting here very quietly taking it all in. <laughs> yeah, Brody's a little shy, so. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, Suzanne, what have I not asked you that I should have? Oh, man. I think you covered a lot of territory. I'm trying to think if there's anything specific I wanted to point out. I don't think so. I mean, I think one thing is reviews. If, if if you know any writers out there, you everyone who's listening, if you know writers, please leave reviews for their work. It, it means a lot both to them individually to hear feedback, and also it helps with um, raising awareness and helps people know what this product is that they're purchasing. So please leave reviews. That is an excellent point, and uh, we've had many authors on who have not asked for that, and that is something that that would be great for people to to be doing. Well, I've read the book, and I highly recommend it, and um, I think it's inspiring, and it's groundbreaking, and I think you're incredibly brave for stepping out and taking this on, because I think um, as it gets more well-known, you're going to get both – applause and detractors because it is it is going to stir up some sensibilities but i'm sure you are acquainted with that and and ready to take that on um so so many many kudos um suzanne i want to thank you for being on with us today our hour is up believe it or not and um, as always you've been an absolute joy and pleasure i want to thank brody for being on board and um all of his work and And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Also, please share this with your friends and family. And um, we are located on any podcast app, on any um, smartphone, iTunes, um, or you can listen to us directly on the web on Blog Talk uh, Radio. Um, Just search for us on any of those platforms, and you will find us and subscribe. We will be back here again next week with another Um, intriguing and wonderful guest. Don't even know who it is yet, but it will be, it will not disappoint. I promise you. So Brody for Brody and myself, I want to thank you all for listening and we will see you again next week. You've been listening to rated LGBT radio. Radio.